0: chapter 11 ezekiel chapter 11 tonight again the chapter is on the judgment of israel's leaders the judgment of israel's leaders when you read the prophecy of jeremiah you learn that the people and the religious leaders of the kingdom of judah and the rulers of jerusalem they weren't interested in knowing god's will nor doing god's will when Jeremiah was in prison, King Zedekiah sent for him to come to the palace because King Zedekiah wanted to ask Jeremiah something, but he was afraid to ask him in public. So he wanted to ask him in secret because he was afraid of what his advisors might do. So King Zedekiah asked Jeremiah, Jeremiah, do you have any messages from the Lord? He said, I do. Zedekiah, God told me to tell you, you're going to be defeated by the king of Babylon. He wanted to know if the Lord had a message for us. Sometimes the messages that the Lord has for us, we don't want to know what they are. And when we get them, we're not too happy about it. But nonetheless, we need to hear both the good and the bad. Now, during Judah's last years, the people were ruled by weak men. Men who supported and encouraged idolatry. And they wouldn't call the people to repentance nor prayer. By publicly wearing a yoke, remember when Jeremiah in chapter 27 was putting on these these drama sermons, these object lessons? Well, he came into the public wearing a yoke. And through that yoke, Jeremiah was making it clear that the only way to keep the city and the temple from being destroyed was for the Jewish leaders to surrender to the Babylonians. ...to be under the yoke of the Babylonians. Instead, the Jewish leaders secretly made an agreement with the Egyptians... ...asking the Egyptians to rescue them from Babylon. But the Egyptians were helpless as well. They couldn't do anything because God had ordered the fall of the nation... ...and he was using King Nebuchadnezzar as the instrument to carry out his will. Here in chapter 11, there's a prophecy against the rulers who were still in Jerusalem... Even though most of the people had been carried away into captivity, Jerusalem hadn't been destroyed yet. King Zedekiah was still the king. And not only were the rulers in rebellion against God, they were also in rebellion against King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon, the king of Babylon. Now, verses 1 through 13 covers the judgment of Jerusalem. Remember in chapter 8, the vision of the pollution of the temple? Well, it finishes with a final view of judgment, a little flicker of hope, and the Lord's departure from his sanctuary, the city, and the land. So the ending of the vision can be divided into three parts. First, there's the judgment of Jerusalem and its leaders and inhabitants in verses 1 through 13. Second, then there's a little glimmer of hope in the darkest hour in verses 14 through 21. And third, at last, God's glory departs in verses 22 through 25. So let's look at chapter 11 now, verses 1 through 3. And it reads, Then the Spirit lifted me up. This is Jeremiah, or This is Ezekiel speaking. Then the Spirit lifted me up and brought me to the east gate of the Lord's house, which faces eastward. And there at the door of the gate were 25 men, among whom I saw Jaazaniah, the son of Azur, and Pelatiah, the son of Benaiah, princes of the people. And he said to me, that is God said to Ezekiel, these are the men who devise iniquity and give wicked counsel in this city, who say the time is not near to build houses. This city is the cauldron and we are the meat. Ezekiel returned in a vision to the east gate of the temple near the place where he saw, here as it says in these verses, 25 men. These 25 men seem to be the same leaders he saw in chapter 8, verse 16. Now, of these 25 men, only two of them were named, Jaazaniah and and Pelatiah. These two men were leaders in Jerusalem. This meant they were state officials. They were responsible for some part of governing the general population. Now, just as a side note, There's been recent archaeological discoveries in the excavations of the city of David that have yielded over 250 clay seals that were used on official documents from the period just before the fall of Jerusalem. They were preserved because they were burned when the building they were uh, stored in was destroyed, probably in the destruction of 586 B.C. Both the names of Jaazaniah and Pelatiah appeared in this archive of seals of royal officials. Also the name Jeremiah and the seal of Jeremiah's scribe Baruch, the son of Neriah, were also found. Ezekiel was told that these men were plotting evil and giving wicked advice in Jerusalem, according to verse 2. Being leaders, they were responsible for the moral, social, and spiritual guidance of the people. God gave Ezekiel two illustrations of their bad counsel. And these men were giving wicked advice to the king and other leaders in Jerusalem. But their counsel wasn't from the Lord. So if it wasn't from the Lord, how could it be good counsel? How could it be wise counsel when they were idolaters who worshipped the sun? And at the same time, they were plotting evil so that they could personally benefit from the Babylonian attack on the city. First of all, verse 3 says, notice, is it not a good time to build houses? This verse suggests that the crisis would be over soon and life would get back to normal. It's also possible that this was a way of denying that there was a crisis. And should be translated, the time is not near. That is, the time of destruction is not near. So let us build houses. We're going to have plenty of time here. Another possibility is that it's a reference to house building while they were in exile. So it would mean the time is not near to build houses. All right. I'm sorry. The time is not near to build houses while we're in exile. Still, another interpretation is that they may have been, it may have been a word of rebellion against Babylon. And the meaning would be, it's not time to build houses, but time to prepare for battle. And this later interpretation seems to fit the context of chapter 11. The second phrase in verse 3 is, This city is like an iron pot. We are safe inside it like meat inside a pot. And at face value, it seems to be referring to the judgment of Judah. But the context suggests the opposite. Most interpreters agree that the cooking pot which was a clay vessel, vessel that was used for cooking food, was used to protect the choice meats from the fire while it was being prepared. The city with its walls and its fortifications was the protection of the people from the fire of Babylon's uh, army. The interpretation fits what's said in verse 11, that this city will not be an iron pot for you. In other words, it will not protect you, and you will not be like meat safe inside of it. So if this was true, it meant that they were relying on Jerusalem's holiness and their military defenses for their safety and their protection. And this was like a condemnation of their misplaced trust because Judah should have relied on God and not the Babylonians. We are to always put our trust in God, not in our ability, not in our understanding. He will direct our paths. He will give us the keys for knowing and doing His will. As Solomon said in Proverbs 3, 5 through 7, Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Lean not on your own understanding. And in all your ways acknowledge Him, and He shall direct your paths. Do not be wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord and depart from evil. We must obey God's will first and foremost. And then He will direct our paths. This is the promise. But the fulfillment of that promise is based on your obedience to the Lord. We must trust Him with all of our heart, and we must obey Him in all of our ways. That means total commitment to Him. The word trust in verse 5 means to lie helpless or face down. It's the picture of a servant waiting for the master's command, and he's ready to obey, or a defeated soldier surrendering himself to a conquering general. But the danger is clear. And that is when we lean on our own understanding, we miss God's will. And this warning isn't suggesting, okay, that that, God gave us brains. So it's it's a warning, but it's not suggesting that, that God's children turn off their brains and ignore their intelligence and common sense. It just warns us not to depend totally on our own wisdom and experience or the experience and wisdom of others. Abraham did this when he went to Egypt, and, and and so did Joshua when he attacked the little town of Ai. See, when we become wise in our own eyes, then we're heading for trouble. And this is probably Proverbs, you know, three verses five through seven is probably, you know, uh, one of the Christians' favorite verses. But we need to remember that these verses, remember are directed to the man or woman who diligently studies God's word. To the young man or woman who listens to God's law. It's like Paul when he wrote to Timothy. He said in 2 Timothy 2.15, study to show yourself approved. Don't just read. Study to show yourself approved to God. A workman that needs not to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. So having studied the word of God and knowing something about the loving kindness and the grace and the truth of God, if we hold on to these things, then trust in Jehovah with all of your heart, not lean on your understanding in all your ways, acknowledge him and he will direct your path. Again, this is a very serious warning, but it offers such great assurance of guidance into a way of peace. What a big contrast this is to Proverbs 28, 26 that says he that trusts in his own heart is a fool. On the other hand, it is a wonderful thing, an awesome thing to, to, to trust in the Lord with all of your heart, soul, and mind, to be totally committed to him. Total commitment to him is what is needed today. And we need to go to the Lord every day over and over and over again and trust in him. With all of our heart. Isaiah said in chapter 46 verse 3 and 4. Listen to me, O house of Jacob. And all the remnant of the house of Israel. Who have been upheld by me from birth. Who have been carried from the womb. Even to your old age. I am he even to gray hairs. Thank you, Lord. I will carry you. I have made and I will bear. Even I will carry and will deliver you. He carries us from birth to death. What a blessing. He says, I've carried you from birth, from the womb, to your old age, to your gray hairs. I've carried you. I will bear you. I will carry And I will deliver you. I mean, what a wonderful promise that God gives us. Verses 4 through 13. Therefore prophesy against them. Prophesy, O son of man. Then the Spirit of the Lord fell upon me and said to me, Speak, thus says the Lord. Thus you have said, O house of Israel, for I know the things that come into your mind. You have multiplied your slain in this city, and you have filled its streets with the slain. Therefore, thus says the Lord God, Your slain whom you have laid in its midst, they are the meat, and this city is the cauldron. But I shall bring you out of the midst of it. You have feared the sword, and I will bring a sword upon you, says the Lord God. And I will bring you out of its midst and deliver you into the hands of strangers and execute judgments on you. You shall fall by the sword, and I will judge you at the border of Israel. Then you shall know that I am the Lord. This city shall not be your cauldron, nor shall you be the meat in its midst. I will judge you at the border of Israel, and you shall know that I am the Lord. For you have not walked in my statutes, nor executed my judgments, but, I, but, but have done according to the customs of the Gentiles, which are all around you. Now it happened while I was prophesying that Pelatia, the son of Benaiah, died. Then I fell on my face and cried with a loud voice and said, All oh Lord God, will you make a complete end of the remnant of Israel? Now, these weren't just idolaters and wicked counselors that God was dealing with. They had also developed an uh, an attitude that gave them and the others a false confidence in the midst of their dangerous situation. They asked, is it not the time? Is not the time near to build houses? And and they said, this city is the pot and we are the meat there in verse 3. Jeremiah had told the exiles to build houses in Babylon, not in Judah, to build houses in Babylon back in Jeremiah 29.4 and settle down there and raise families because they would live there for 70 years. But the false prophets were lying to them and say, hey, this is going to be over in a flash and you get back to business as normal. But it was foolish for the people in Jerusalem to build houses because the Lord had ordered the Babylonian army to destroy the city and slaughter most of the people living in it. So these evil leaders were sure that Jerusalem was as safe for them as a piece of meat cooking in a pot. And the suggestion in this metaphor was that the people in Jerusalem were choice cuts of meat, while the exiles in Babylon were just the scraps and rejected pieces. But it was just the opposite. If the leaders in Jerusalem had listened to Jeremiah's message about the baskets of figs in Jeremiah chapter 24, they would have seen that their way of thinking was totally the reverse. It was completely reversed. The good figs were the exiles and the bad figs were the people left in Jerusalem. God would preserve a remnant from among the exiles, but the idolaters in Jerusalem, they would be killed. So the Lord told Ezekiel to prophesy against those leaders there in verse 4. And he says, point out to them that they weren't the meat. They were the butchers. Because they had killed innocent people in Jerusalem. Stolen their possessions. And even if the leaders weren't killed in Jerusalem, they wouldn't escape the judgment. Even if they ran away out of the city. If they took off and fled from the city. The Babylonians would catch them at the border and then pass sentence on them and kill them. And you know what? That's exactly what happened. Then the Jewish officials would learn, too late, like a lot of times people learn too late, that Jehovah alone is Lord. He's Lord of heaven and earth. In Ezekiel's vision, he preached this message. Verse 13 says, Pelatia fell down dead. The Lord gave the sun worshipers a crystal clear sign that their evil thoughts and their evil plans could only lead to disaster. And then Ezekiel, he shows his shepherd's heart again, his tender, compassionate heart. How? Verse 13 says, by falling on his face before the Lord, and he prayed for the people. Just like in chapter 9, 8, he prayed that the Lord would spare a remnant of the people so that Israel would have a future. Now, verses 14 through 21 covers the second part of the chapter, a glimmer of hope. Let's begin with verses 14 through 16. Again, the word of the Lord came to me, saying, Son of man, your brethren, your relatives, your countrymen, and all the house of Israel in its entirety are those about whom the inhabitants of Jerusalem have said, Get far away from the Lord. This land has been given to us as a possession. Therefore say... Thus says the Lord God, Although I have cast them, far, uh, cast them far off among the Gentiles, and although I have scattered them among the countries, yet I shall be a little sanctuary for them in the countries where they have gone. When Ezekiel and others were taken to Babylon in 597 B.C., not everybody was taken captive. Those who were left in Jerusalem after 597 B.C. presumed it was the exiles who are going to be judged. So the land belonged to those who were left, according to verses 14 and 15. They implemented the right to redeem property allowed under the Levitical law. The law provided a way for the people to buy back their property within the family and tribal groups in connection with the year of Jubilee, Leviticus 25. But God didn't totally abandon the exiles in Babylon. Babylon. I love what he said there in verse 16. He said, I will be a little sanctuary to them. He was a little sanctuary to them during their captivity. God wanted these people who were all of a sudden without the temple as a place of worship and to learn to worship him in spirit and in truth. The psalmist said in Psalm 90 verse 1, Lord, you have been our dwelling place in all generations. The self-confident Jews in Jerusalem thought that they were secure. Notice, as long as they had the temple. And you know, they were trusting in the building. But the true temple was with the exiles in Babylon. And way before there ever was a tabernacle or a temple, the patriarch, the early church fathers, they they had God as their refuge. They had God as their strength. He was their sanctuary and He was their abiding place. The New Testament equivalent of this experience is to abide in Christ. He's our refuge. He's our hiding place. He's our fortress. Also, God promised that even though Israel would be taken captive, there would be a remnant to return and possess the land again. Look at verses 17 through 21. Therefore, say thus says the Lord God, I will gather you from the peoples, assemble you from the countries where you have been scattered, and I will give you the land of Israel. And they will go there, and they will take away all its detestable things and all its abominations from there. Then I will give them one heart, and I will put a new new spirit within them and take the stony heart out of their flesh and give them a heart of flesh that they may walk in my statutes and keep my judgments and do them and they shall be my people and I will be their God. But as for those whose hearts follow the desire for their detestable things and their abominations, I will recompense their deeds or I will you know, repay them according to their works. On their, I will recompense their deeds on their own heads, says the Lord God. So the Lord promised the Jews through Ezekiel that those who had been scattered in exile would physically return to the land but the, the promise involved more than just being there in the land physically. There would be a lot of spiritual changes and there would be a general spiritual revival. Those returning would remove, it says, all the detestable things and all the abominations, all of the idols and all of those things that God hated, all of the vile images and all the detestable idols. They would remove them when they got back to the land. So this great and widespread revival would be the result of Jehovah's gift of a new heart and a new spirit. You see, God's spirit changes things. The heart was thought to be the center of human reason and choice, the center of the emotions. You know, what, what, the heart, what, what leads somebody to reject one way and choose another. So this new heart that god would give the people would not be divided any longer between the true and living god and dead idols they wouldn't be flip-flopping anymore between two opinions sometimes serving god sometimes serving baal an undivided heart is what they had it was you know in in you know and now it would be to pursue the way of worship and to serve the lord In 1 Kings 18, verse 20, it says, Elisha came to all the people and the prophets on Mount Carmel. And he said, how long will you falter between two opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal, follow him. Joshua 24, 15, said, Choose for yourselves this day whom you will serve. Israel had tried to follow the Lord and idols. And a lot of people today, even Christian, they, they have one foot in the kingdom of God and one foot in the world. It, it, it can't happen. It won't work. That's a divided heart. So trying to follow the Lord and trying to find, find, uh, follow the idol, that's not a very well thought out plan. And it only leads to Destruction. So from that time on, they were going to follow the Lord with an undivided devotion. And that's how we must follow the Lord, with an undivided devotion. Loving Him and only Him. Serving Him and serving only Him with all of our heart. Obeying Him completely and unconditionally. The new spirit here, the Lord promises them, also seems to to refer to a transformation of Israel's way of thinking which verse said had become perverted. Notice he said in five verse 5, I know the things that come into your mind. He knows our thoughts from afar off, the psalmist says in Psalm 139. So there's nothing we can keep from God. But the new spirit is united with God's spirit, which he promised to put in Israel. The change from a heart of stone to a heart of flesh there's also promise in Ezekiel thirty six twenty six. A hard heart is a stubborn heart. It's an unresponsive heart to God. But a sensible and repentant heart, a soft and tender one, a sanctified and spiritual heart, one that's flexible and submissive is to the will of God, where the impressions are made is where the laws of God are written. In 2 Chronicles 34, verse 27, the Lord Lord blessed King Josiah because he wasn't like the kings before him. King Josiah's heart, it was soft, it was responsive. And he humbled himself before God. Remember after Nabal, Abigail's wife, uh, after the run-in that he had with David when he was trying to get a little uh, support and supply from Nabal? And how, how he just treated David, David so badly, so discourteously, that's no respect. Because he had a hard heart. It says, Nabal's heart then failed him, and he became like stone. And then it says, 10 days later, Nabal died. And the word Nabal, his name, his name meant fool. He was a fool, literally. It seems that, that Nabal had, had a, had a, was stricken with paralysis. Maybe even a stroke in First Samuel 25. You see, the heart of stone, it's a dead heart. It's a hard heart. It's not receptive. And when you have a dead heart, guess what? If you don't already know, nothing else works. Your limbs are useless. Everything in the rest of your body is useless. It does not respond. It makes all the limbs incapable of being used. The heart of flesh is the living heart. The heart of flesh is full of discernment. And at the same time, the heart of flesh is ready for new action. And this new mind... This transformed mind, this renewed mind brings to the perception and the will of heart the new necessary power to hold on steadfastly in obedience to the Lord, willing obedience to the Lord. Ezekiel saw a new day when God's covenant people would be in the land again and they would be devoted only to the Lord and they would enjoy only fellowship with the Lord. After the exile, when many Jews returned to a restored area of Judah, you know fulfilling the prophecy, they were careful to stay away from idolatry. but their dis, but their obedience it, it still wasn't complete, neither was their experience of of the promise the promised blessings that were connected to their, their obedience. So the radical spiritual transformation here of the people and the physical blessings promised. In this and other prophecies of the new covenant, we're still waiting for the fulfillment of those promises and completeness of obedience in a future messianic age, in God's millennial kingdom. But these promises would only be for those who would receive the new heart and spirit by faith. Those who refused would be judged and eliminated according to verse 21. The remnant would be made up of those who repented and returned to the standard. Nothing lower than the undivided heart. That's the standard. Undivided devotion is what God expects from you and me. And whenever we fail to give him our undivided commitment, we are inviting God's chastening. Because as Jesus said, no one can serve two masters. Nobody, you, you can't serve two masters. There's no way. And then in verses 22 through 25, we have the third part, the departure of God's glory. The third part of the division of the chapter here. Look at verses 22 through 25. So the cherubim lifted up their wings with the wheels beside them, and the glory of the Lord of Israel was high above them. And the glory of the Lord went up from the midst of the city and stood on the mountain which is on the east side of the city.